Hebrews chapter 9, let's pray. Father, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that believers, every one of us might be spirit-filled listeners. Lord, that we might desire from our heart the joy of seeing you one day and live with that hope in mind. And as John wrote, everyone that has a hope in him purifies himself to be like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd feed us from this passage, equip us. And Lord, for those that might be here, I don't know hearts you do, that on the edge, they've not partaken yet. And so they're watching and they're thinking and they're considering, Lord, I pray that you draw them to yourself today, that this might be the first Christmas season that they really worship you. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen. I believe Hebrews is written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, as you study his epistles, you see his attorney-ness coming out. He's always arguing a case. He's always setting up. He gets very verbose, very words mean things. And so he uses a lot of words. And sometimes he says things over and over again so you get the point. And he's always thinking ahead what somebody might be asking and answering those questions. We come to chapter 9. And he is comparing once again the old and the new. We've seen that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's, he's better than the Old Testament priests. He's from his order. The order of Melchizedek is better than the Levitical order. Now he comes down to compare the old and the new. So in verses 1 through 10, we see the covenant. And the rest of the chapter up through verse 26, we see the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant. And then 27 and 28, you see you have a clear choice to make. Very clear choice. Verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. The thing we have to remember is that God ordained the first covenant, the Old Testament. He's the one that thought it up. He's the one that wrote it. He gave it to Moses, and they were to carry it out. Warren Wiersbe said the chief obstacle in the way of the Hebrews' faith was their failure to see that everything connected with the ceremonial law, the covenant, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and ritual was preparatory and transient. It was preparing them for the king, preparing them for the sacrifice that would take away sin. So when John the Baptist was there in John 1, and he was preparing the way for the king, he was the forerunner. When Jesus came, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, the people living in Jesus' day just thought the problem was they needed better government if they could just get rid of Rome. And yet the problem was in their own hearts. We live in the same situation today. And while we desire godly leadership, politics is not the problem in America today. It's not politics. It's our heart. And so he said the first covenant was ordained by God, but it was transient. The regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary to prepare people's hearts for when the king would come. He, in particular, he takes and he uses the tabernacle, not the temple, as the illustration. Those of you that go to Israel, I hope you still get the opportunity because it's in the Palestinian side, but... One of the great blessings is to go to Shiloh. 
Now, most of the places you go where there are digs, uh, cultures and time has built on top over and over again, so they have to dig way down, not in Shiloh. In Shiloh, there wasn't anything built there. When, it, when they left, they just left it, and so they didn't have to go down too far. And you can go to the place, and those of you who have been there, the place where Eli would sit outside the tabernacle, and where Hannah came to pray for a son, Samuel. It's right there. But as wonderful as it is, when you read Exodus, when God gave them all of the dimensions and what things were even made of in the tabernacle, it was still just a what? A tent. It was a tent. Something could pick up and move and take other places. It had to be repaired because it was made of earthly materials. And yet, for 300 years, the tabernacle was there at Shiloh. Now, the amazing part to me, I went back and read again the story of Samuel and his call to be a prophet of God. And how wicked the sons of Eli were. Now, what's amazing about that to me is not that somebody could be wicked when their father is a, is a pastor or a priest, but that the glory cloud was right there, was right there. The other thing that caused me to wonder, because being a student of Doug Bookman's, you know, he'll teach and he'll make you ask three other questions. We know that the priest, we're going to read that, the high priest, only the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies every year, just once a year. Well, when they got out to battle with the Philistines during the time of Eli's when he was high priest, and they began to lose, the people at the battlefront said, hey, let's get the ark down here. Who went into the Holy of Holies with the glory cloud there, and why didn't God strike them dead? I don't know, never thought of that, but being with Doug Bookman, he makes you ask those questions. He what was going on there? Well, God did strike those two dead. He just didn't do it immediately. Verse 2, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which was the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Now, the thing you need to understand is very, very exclusive. All of Israel, this is not a big place. You have millions of people and you say, how did they all fit in there to go to church? They didn't go to church there. They would bring their sacrifices there, and the holy place only the tribe of Levi could go into. Now, later when they built a temple, they had this big outer court that if you were a proselyte to Israel, you wanted to know God, then you had to become a, a part of the Israel nation. But until the, the fifth generation, you had to stay in the outer court of the Gentiles. That's the court that Jesus cleansed. Because they turned it into a Kmart. They turned it into a Walmart and they were just making money out, out there. And he said, Jesus came in, remember he cleansed the temple more than once. And he said, God intended for this to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And nobody questioned that he was doing the right thing. They just said, by what authority do you do this? So there was the outer court in the temple. And the Gentiles had come in that close. And then if you're a Jewish woman, you could go to the court of the women. You could get that close. You couldn't go any closer. Then inside that was the court of the men. And inside that, he's talking about here that we see in the tabernacle, was the holy place. Now, in all of these symbols, we see Jesus Christ. We see a pattern of what God's going to do. 
They have the lampstand. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. They had the table with the sacred bread. Jesus was the bread of life. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which was called the Holy of Holies. There was a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covering all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. What was represented there? The covenant that God made with Israel, the law, Aaron's rod that budded, God, what God used to deliver his children from the nation of Egypt, and then the manna, God's supernatural provision to sustain his people. Over and over you see the types of Christ and what is coming. Verse 5. Above the seat were cherubim of gold, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I don't know exactly why I said that. As I was doing my study, nobody really made a comment on that. One, way, one reason might be because there was no ark anymore. Even though they had temple worship going on, we believe that Jeremiah hid the ark and that God may be preserving it for when one day Jesus comes. Now, if you go to Israel... There's a museum there. You can pay a lot of money to go in and see. Dr. Bookman doesn't encourage us to do that because, number one, it's expensive, and number two, it's just for the Antichrist temple because the Jews are preparing, and, and a lot of times we as believers get excited about that, but our excitement isn't that God is going to be worshipped truly again in the temple. Somehow, we see that God's going to establish, God is going to allow the Jewish people to establish a temple again. And there's going to be a covenant made which begins the seven-year period of tribulation, but it's not a good covenant. It's a covenant with the Antichrist. It's going to help them rebuild their temple. Now, whether the Muslims are going to be able on the Temple Mount to also worship and they're going to build a temple there, it's big enough, probably room for that. I don't know. But you can go to this museum and pay a lot of money, and they already have the great big candelabra that's there. It sits out in a big glass case covered with gold and very well protected. It's out in the public. That's to draw you inside. And they take the money there, and they're preparing the garments and all the utensils for that temple. But when God wrapped up the temple worship, he's never, God is never going to establish it. There's never going to be true worship again in a temple made with hands. Think about that. We see God working and bringing these things to pass because in the tribulation, the tribulation is about God saving the nation of Israel. If you look at Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is Israel waking up to the fact that they missed their Messiah. Now, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross, but it's also a prophecy of the Jewish people in the time of tribulation waking up to the fact they missed their Messiah. And they have great nostalgia. Nostalgia is a powerful thing, isn't it? Sometimes I take a trip over to Wheatland where I grew up. And a couple times I've just kind of walked around the streets and things aren't as big as I thought when I was 8 or 9 or 12. And the distances aren't as far. I, that was a big deal for me to walk downtown. It's about four blocks. And nostalgia is very powerful, but you know what? You can't ever really go back, can you? And yet these people were refusing to let go. Now, maybe you grew up in a liturgical church. 
And you have great childhood memories about that. That's exactly what these people were dealing with. Those memories. And if God used those things as a schoolmaster to bring you to the place now where you have real faith, bless God for that. One thing I'm very thankful that the Roman Catholic Church still teaches is that the Bible is the Word of God. They teach that. They teach the Trinity. They teach that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. The problem is, and I'm not saying you're not saved because you're Roman Catholic. I think there's, there's born-again people in every denomination. But what is taught is somehow you work your way. Jesus did all he got to do. Now you've got to do all you could do, and yet... Jesus said when he died on the cross, it is finished. All you have to do is receive the work of salvation. But we see, we can understand why they were holding on to this nostalgia because of all the memories that they had. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need to let go of that. You're not honoring God by holding on to that which he's folding up because it's old, it's worn out, and it's dead. It's not necessary anymore. Like not going to the university because you want to relive grade school. You don't do that. You may have great memories from grade school, but it's time to move on. He said, now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, he talks about the tabernacle. So you have the the holy, the, the, the place, the holy place, which only the priest went into where the showbread was and the altar of incense and, the, and where they did the sacrifice. And then on the inside was the holy of holies. Look how exclusive it is. Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of, of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the weight of the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So when it was going on and they were worshiping, they didn't understand at that time that one day there was going to be an access for all people to come to know the Lord. We call it the priesthood of the believer. That you, because of the blood of Christ, have access to the throne of God. We looked at that in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, that you can come boldly to the throne of grace now and find help in time of need. You don't have to go through a priest or a pastor. You go directly to God in your prayer. Say, so when did that happen? When Jesus died on the cross in Matthew 27, 51, the Bible says that when Jesus died, when he committed his spirit back to God, when he dismissed his spirit, he bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. Remember he said in John 9, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I'll take it up again. Well, he dismissed his spirit. And the soldiers come by later and they ram that spear up under his ribs and they pierce the heart sack and John sees it and recognizes what came forth was blood and water. It meant he was dead. He was already dead. He didn't swoon on the cross. He didn't just faint and then kind of come too late in the grave. He died. He shed his blood and he died for our sins. And the Bible says there was an earthquake then. Read that passage in Matthew 27, 51. There was an earthquake and the veil was rent from the top to the bottom. With all those sacrifices, because when Jesus died, it was the time when the lambs were being offered. What do you think that was like when all of a sudden that was opened? Wow, 
And what did they see? What happened is it was opened up and they saw there was nothing there but access. Access. And I don't know, we talked about last week, if they really got busy real quick and sewed it back up again so they could continue the charade. But Jesus opened the way. The Bible says also that what happened, that the graves were open when that earthquake took place. And some of the saints who had already died came forth and they stayed in the graves until Jesus rose from the dead and they went into the city and they also testified. Wow, Jesus wasn't the only one that raised from the dead. Jesus raised other people from the dead. He broke the power of sin and death. Jesus made the way in for all of us. The Holy Spirit, verse 8, is signifying that the way to the holy place was not yet disclosed while the outer, outer tabernacle was still standing, which is also a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in con uh, conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Now, the word reformation means making the way straight. Now, what's he saying there? Think about this. If a criminal is caught for his crime and he's prosecuted in the court of law and they give him a sentence. Remember, this is God ruling his people. This is King Yahweh ruling his people through the tabernacle. He reigns from the Holy of Holies. And somebody breaks a law and that prisoner in our time goes off, or that criminal goes off to prison and serves his time. They say, the, the, you know, the judge says, 90 days, Jerry, or he gives him five years. And the prisoner goes and serves his time. Does that mean his heart has changed? No. You would hope, I've heard of prisoners that God has gotten a hold of their heart. Some of you that are here. And God used that to get your attention, and you bowed your heart before the Lord, and God changed your heart. But the court couldn't do that. I've been in court to give testimony before. And one time I had a judge ask me because he knew I was giving testimony as a pastor. He said, uh, Pastor, and he was being a, a little rough, trying to shake me up. Didn't shake me up. I was thankful for him. Do you think that this person, because they've gotten their heart right with God, is free then from the penalties of the law? I said, absolutely not. Why? Because they're two mutually exclusive things. If you become a Christian after you commit a crime and you get caught, the good thing is you just get to start your jail ministry, right? Because they're two different things. And so what he's saying is God ruled from, from his throne in the Holy of Holies and he gave the law. And if you came and you sinned and you brought your sacrifice, there was an outer cleansing. It took care of the flesh. But didn't necessarily mean your heart got changed. Did some people get their heart changed? Yes, they did. And the purpose of the law and the sacrifices that were over and over and over and over again was to point out, man needs a savior. These external paying of sins can never change the heart. God has to change the heart. So we come to verse 11. The first 10 verses have to do with the old covenant. The second... The next 16 verses have to do with the new covenant. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, 
That is to say, not of this creation. I want you to look at something because we can go through the book of Hebrews and we have more information than they did in this time even of what God has given us in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 21 in verse 10. This is the new place, the perfect covenant. Now, it's not the new place. It was there before the old covenant. But it is the perfect tabernacle that Jesus ministered his blood in. 21.10. And he carried me away, that's John, in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was very like a costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. So it's like a diamond. At a great high wall with 12 gates, at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. So the new Jerusalem, this isn't the new heavens, this is just the new Jerusalem where worship is going to take place. And some writers think that it's 1,500 miles, well, it says right here, it's 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high by 1,500 miles deep, and it could be shaped as a pyramid or it's a square. And what does it say? It goes on to say that this place has all these 12 foundation stones, and it just shines like a a jewel that has light from within. He says, verse 17, or excuse me, verse 18, the the wall, the material of the wall was like jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the stone of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was a single pearl. And the street to the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what he's comparing it to. An old tent or the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And he's trying to break these people loose so that they just don't see with nostalgia and the eyes with, of physical things, but they begin to see with the eyes of faith what God has prepared. And I love what it calls Jesus there. He is the high priest of the good things to come. And then it says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What did we see before? 
The, piece, the, the priest is going in over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And every year, once a year, he has to go in again. He has to go in again. He has to go in again. When we look at the book of Exodus and we look at the law and we see all of the, all of the, the weight and it's pointed out how awful God thinks sin is and everything has a sacrifice attached to it. And then we understand that Jesus paid it all. One sacrifice. And he obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, For with the blood of bulls and goats and the ash of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctify the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is that? You have eternal redemption and internal salvation. He changes us from within. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you're born again. You become partaker of His life. Now, when you were conceived by your mother and your father, you got their DNA. And so it's no surprise if your kids grow up and they act as bad as you act. You know, and you know how to deal with them because that's your spirit. And they look like you and they sound like you. And, and, and we take joy in that. So, oh, they look just like their dad. They, oh, they look just like their mom. We're not amazed by that. But the Bible says Jesus came that we might have life and that we have, might have it more abundantly because when we partake of him, we partake of his spiritual DNA, and we are born again from the inside out. So the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Everything's changing. And sometimes you can't believe it. You begin to grow, and all of a sudden you say, whoa, I can't believe. This used to be a problem to me. Now, maybe you come from a family that anger is a problem or Greediness is a problem or stinginess is a problem. You say, well, that's the way my grandpa's been. Yeah, but that's not who your father is anymore. You don't have to live like that anymore. You've been given the victory in Jesus Christ. You can overcome the flesh. The old law, that was just with controlling the flesh, but God has given you a change in your heart. And maybe you think from the outside, well... I see how Christians live, and I just can't live up to that. Take hope in this. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And John 1, 12 says, as many received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. It doesn't come from you. Paul said, I don't live my life by the power of the flesh. It's no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. So that what? So that God gets all the glory for your life. Verse 15, we have this idea of a new covenant. I think this is important information for us. For this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So we have eternal redemption, we have internal salvation, and we have eternal inheritance. Now, Peter wrote, and he said, listen, we don't have an inheritance to get, get faded and old and is going to pass away. 
but it's eternal. It's reserved in heaven for us. It's there. It's for all eternity, this, this inheritance. Now, we understand that. Now, growing up, we don't think much about death. When we're young, it, it takes us by surprise. But as you get older, your aunts and uncles get to that place, your mom and your dad, and all of a sudden we think about the will, don't we? Making sure that we pass it on the right way. And so we have wills drawn up, exactly what we want to have happened. But you don't partake of the inheritance until the person who wrote the will dies, right? That's what happens. That would be rude. Now we have the story of the prodigal son that said, Dad, I want it now. And God had to get all of his heart and he came back. But but we don't go say, you know what, uh, I don't want to wait till you die. Give me my stuff now. Because many times they need that to be able to sustain life. And if you love your mom and dad, you don't want that. You want them to be able to have everything they have. They can enjoy all their, their life to the end. But in order for that will to be read, the person who made the will has to die. So, well, that makes sense. For where there are covenant, there must necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. It's never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So in that case, there was a covenant by the death of animals. Now, here's just some word power for you, some wisdom. During this time, you're going to see some advertisements. It seems like every year we have some advertisements come on from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what do they say? Well, we have the Bible, and then we have what? Another covenant of Jesus Christ. How do you know that's a lie? Because of what is written here. Words mean things. See, Testament doesn't mean Old Testament like old book and New Testament new book and then other covenant, other book. No, no. It's a will. And what they're saying when they say, well, there's another covenant, well, this new one didn't work out quite right. God didn't see things coming, so he had to make another covenant, and so you need to get on that one too. So my question is, who died? Who else died? Because the Bible says very clearly that Jesus Christ died once for all, and he sat down. So you don't come to the Bible and say, well, I'm going to make up a new word. It'll mean something different. Even though it sounds kind of religious, that's what Satan does. He's a, he's a copier. And it's a bad copy. And we as believers, we come to the word, we, we fill ourselves up with the word so that why? We have weapons. We have defenses. We are strengthened and built up. So when somebody brings a false copy to us, say, no, that's not right. What do you mean another book? What do you mean another covenant? The Bible says there's only, there's the old covenant, which was a schoolmaster to bring people to God for the new covenant, which is established and his word forever is settled in heaven. That's it. That's it. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not by works. It's not by the old covenant. It's only in the covenant of his blood, which is settled. It's done. It's over. It's available. Not something else. 
Verse 21. In the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. And according to the law, because it's what God commanded, that's what he told Moses to do. So Aaron carried out the law. It was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Why? We're going to read in chapter 10 when we come there, Lord willing, we're going to read that it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away the sin of human beings. But it was just a temporary covering so that they would look forward to the time when their king would come and set them free from sin. So it's necessary that Jesus bring a better offering. For Jesus did not enter a holy place made with hands. Remember, Jesus couldn't go into the temple as a priest. Why? Because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. But we looked both in 7 and 8 that he's of the tribe. He's of the, the priestly order of Melchizedek. That's his tribe. That's his priestly order. It's a better order. And he takes a sacrifice into the real holy place, not a copy but the place that we read about, the New Jerusalem, that's there in Revelation 21, he brings it into that place. So we can't have the blood of bulls and goats in there. And he can't have the blood of sinful human beings because we read there that nothing that ever defiles would be taken in there. And the blood of humans would defile it. So there needs to be a perfect sacrifice. Verse 25 nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest does. Why? Because it only needed to happen once. Only once. Otherwise, he'd have to die over and over and over again. Now, there is in some communion services a sense that somehow Jesus has to offer his blood again. And then people partake of that blood. No, no, he died once for all. We look back, remember we are thankful. It reminds us that everything we have, everything we are as believers is because of his death, his sacrifice for us. But we don't offer him again. It's already been done. Otherwise, he would have needed suffer since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has manifest, been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We sang it this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. By what? By the blood of Jesus Christ. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. Have you been to the flood? He brings us down to verse 27. He says, now there's a very clear choice. You can be pulled back by nostalgia into that old thing that's passing away that could never save your life. It could only point you to the one who can. But he only died once, verse 27 says, inasmuch as it appointed to men once to die. Jesus was a man. He was 100% God, but he became man that he might be a sacrifice for us. He became man. And when we go to heaven, we'll be made perfect. 
As we get older, we begin to suffer the ravages of time, do we not? All of us do. And those old football injuries and those old things that you thought that was done because you healed up, all of a sudden, it's got a hitch in your get-up. And God's going to fix all that. And you're going to be perfect as He intended you to be without sin, perfect for all eternity. But you know what Jesus is? In John 5, in Revelation chapter 5, John said he saw the line of the tribe of Judah as a lamb freshly slain. So those wounds of the crucifixion are going to be clearly seen for all eternity. So that all eternity we will worship and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because he has redeemed to himself some from every tribe, tongue, and people group. So we'll always remember that all that we have, all that is provided was not because of our goodness, but because of what he did in taking our place on the cross. And just as appointed a man wants to die, and after this, what? Judgment. There's a choice. You can hold on to nostalgia. You can hold on to your own works that can't take away sin. Even though you've paid the penalty of man's laws, it can't take away sin. It can't change your heart. You say, well, I'll just wait for God to judge me. You will lose. You will lose. There's only one sacrifice he accepts, and that is the blood of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So he said, it's appointed a man once to die. Jesus died once, and after this judgment. So you can stand at judgment for your own sin, or he said, there's a choice. Verse 28, so Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So there's judgment coming or is the, the eager anticipation of seeing your king, your redeemer, your savior. This last week, Brian Fortman asked for some memories because his dad's turning six days. I'm way past that, man. I'm 61. So what were some memories that you've had with, with my dad? And I just wrote, talked about the precious memory of going through the Bible with Mike and coming to the second to last verse. And we read together, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. As much as you may have trials in this life, and you wish for the good old days when people remember what right and wrong were, we anticipate the better things to come because he is the high priest of the better things to come. The question is, do you know him? Because if you know him, that's what you live your life for. You don't, let your, 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 you don't get all down and nasty and, and angry and upset because of money. Because this goes bad or you don't get this, that doesn't make any difference because he's prepared a place for you in heaven, that inheritance that's eternal that can never pass away. Do you have disappointments? Of course you do. But it's all tempered because you have this hope that never goes away. The question is, do you really have the hope? That's the question. Somebody wrote a little statement. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He said, if you trust him, 
Romans 10, verse 11, if you've really trusted your, your life to Jesus Christ, you're truly a follower every day of Jesus Christ. He said, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed. For the believer, even with the trials, even with the challenges of being a light in a dark world, we still have the opportunity for the attitude. All this in heaven too. And we have this challenge to be found faithful now. Faithful. He's given us that opportunity to shine brightly for him. But you only shine if you have the hope. If you're trying to shine and you don't have that hope, you're not secure in his love, that's a miserable place to be. You're just trying to be a Christian. You're trying to do the Christian thing. But it's not just coming out of your life as Sam was praying today. We don't... We ought not to be ministering evangelism like trying to get people to join our church out of duty. That, that's not what evangelism is, trying to get people to join your church, trying to get them over to your, the way you think. True evangelism is just sharing the love of Christ out of an abundant heart that's just thankful because the hope of Christ just flows out of your life like springs of water. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that we, you are the high priest of better things to come. We're thankful for the Old Testament and the law as we see what you were doing and pointing out our hopelessness under the law. But then you fulfilled the law for us and offered salvation full and free. Lord, I pray that not one would leave here without your salvation that's offered. And Lord, that we as your children might go from this place with a renewed hope and a renewed vision and a focus on the good things to come and that we might live with eternal, eternity's values in mind and not clinging to this world. Teach us how to walk, Lord. We each have our own path. We each have our own challenges. We each have our own giftedness to be found faithful with. Lord, teach us in the way we should go that we might be found faithful. And we'll give you all the glory one day. We're looking forward to that, Lord Jesus. We can't even imagine... And we pray in your precious name, amen.